What you're about to hear are the last telegraph transmissions from Corregidor Island on May 6, 1942, as broadcast to the American public later that summer. It is about five minutes long and somewhat meandering, but be assured I'll explain the context later in the episode. I'm including the broadcast in its entirety to give you the opportunity to experience it in full. They are not near yet. We are waiting for God only knows what. How about a chocolate soda? Not many. Not near yet. Lots of heavy fighting going on. We've only got about one hour, 20 minutes before... We may have to give up by noon. We don't know yet. They are throwing men and shells at us, and we may not be able to stand it. They have been shelling us faster than you can count. We've got about 55 minutes, and I feel sick at my stomach. I am really low down. They are around now, smashing rifles. They bring in the wounded every minute. It is a horrible sight. We will be waiting for you guys to help. This is the only thing, I guess, that can be done. General Wainwright is a right guy, and we are willing to go on for him. But shells were dropping all night, faster than hell. Damage terrific. Too much for guys to take. Enemy heavy cross-shelling and bombing. They have got us all around and from skies. From here, it looks like firing ceased on both sides. Men here all feeling bad because of terrific nervous strain of the siege. Corregidor used to be a nice place. It's haunted now. Withstood a terrific pounding. Just made broadcast to Manila to arrange meeting for surrender. Talk made by General Beebe. I can't say much. Can't think at all. I can hardly think. Say, I have 60 pesos you can have for this weekend. The white flag is up. Everyone is bawling like a baby. They're piling dead, wounded soldiers in our tunnel. I'm vomiting. Arms weak from pounding tea, long hours. No rest. Short rations. Tired. I know now how a mouse feels. Caught in a trap. 
waiting for guys to come along. Finish it up. Got a treat. Canned pineapple. Opening it with signal core knife. My name, Irving Strobing. Get this to my mother. Mrs. Minnie Strobing. 605 Barbie Street, Brooklyn, New York. They are to get along okay. Get in touch with them soon as possible. Message. My love to Pa, Joe, Sue, Max, Carrie, Joy, and Paul. Also to all family and friends. God bless them all. Hope they be there when I come home. Tell Joe, wherever he is, give him hell for us. My love, you all. God bless you and keep you. Love. Sign my name and tell my mother how you heard from me. Stand by. And that was the last thing the United States heard from Corregidor Island. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the United States surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm your host and researcher, Anastasia Harmon. My great-grandfather was a prisoner of war in the Philippines, and his memoir inspired me to tell the stories of his fellow captives. If you, like me, believe it's important for people to hear this relatively unknown part of World War II history, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. Word of mouth is the number one way people find new podcasts, so by sharing, you're helping to keep these important stories alive. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Irving Strobing. He's the radio operator who sent the last Morse code telegraph messages off of Corregidor Island on May 6, 1942, as the Japanese invasion grew ever heavier and closer to Malinta Tunnel, which was headquarters of Allied forces in the Philippines. The recording you heard at the beginning of this episode includes Strobing's telegraph signals with a narrator speaking the word Strobing tapped out. The message ranges between a play-by-play of the events taking place just outside the Melinda Tunnel to the raw emotions of a 22-year-old in a dire situation and to a personal message for the people he loves back home. In this episode, we're also fortunate to hear many of Irving's own words. Some are read, as you just heard, by a radio broadcaster, some by a voice actor, some are read by his niece, Stephanie Wolken, and some, well, he'll speak those words to you himself. It's a unique opportunity to hear a POW speaking of his experience in his own voice, and not something we've heard often on Left Behind. So let's jump in. 
Irving Strobing was born March 24, 1920, in Brooklyn, New York. I was privileged to speak with his favorite niece, Stephanie Wolkin. She told me, He also one time told me that me and my brother were his favorite niece and nephew. I must have been maybe eight at the time. My brother would have been five. And we were all excited. We went around for about a week. Wow, we're Unc's favorite niece and nephew. And then I looked at my brother one day and I said, Jan, we're his only niece and nephew. Well, my uncle, Irving Strobing, was the second of three children. His older brother, Joe, was mentioned in his message. And his younger sister, by three years, was my mother. Her given name was Sylvia, but her nickname was Sue. And so she's also referenced in his message from Corregidor. He had just pretty much normal upbringing, you know, a kid in Brooklyn. Nothing particularly um, exciting, I guess. Irving's parents, Samuel and Minnie Strobing, were both Jewish immigrants from present-day Poland who came to the United States around 1909. So his parents evaded living through the home front horrors of both World War I and World War II. The family spoke Yiddish at home, and the father, Sam, worked as a tailor while mother, Minnie, was a housewife. Irving graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in the later 1930s and then attended Brooklyn College for a year until July 1939, when the 19-year-old enlisted in the U.S. Army. He was quickly sent to Signal Corps School in New Jersey and then to a base near San Francisco, California, then to Hawaii and finally to the Philippine Islands. He always knew that he wanted to go into the Army and um, he was hoping to make it his career. From everything I've heard, including from my dad, who was um, a ham radio operator and very close with my uncle, Apparently, my uncle was a wizard at sending Morse code. He sent it fast, and it was accurate, and he was kind of known for that. And actually, I can attest to that a bit. He was in a 1961 World War II documentary where he showed his telegraph skills. He taps out the message so fast while speaking the words he's tapping and not even looking at the machine. I mean, I still have to look at the keyboard while I type. And that has to be so much easier than tapping out Morse code. Well, when Strobing got to the Philippines, he was stationed first in Baguio, which is in the north central area of Luzon Island. That's the largest island in the Philippines. He was the chief radio operator there. However, on December 8th, 1941, he was on a three-day pass in Manila when the Japanese attacked the Philippines. Thus, he remained in Manila as a radio operator until January 1st, 1942, when he was sent to Corregidor Island. Once on The Rock, as the servicemen fondly called the island, Strobing became a mainstay in Malinta Tunnel, specifically in the lateral tunnel where the Signal Corps was located. The Signal Corps shared that lateral tunnel with the Finance Department, whose story I told in episode 41, and I've put the link to that episode in the show description. Since Strobing was stationed in a tunnel bored into the base of a large hill, he wouldn't have experienced the full extent of the dire effects of the constant air bombardment and artillery shelling of Corregidor, which grew only worse as April 1942 turned into May. Strobing said, I guess I was pretty lucky. The job kept me under many feet of rock. On the night of May 5-6, 1942, 
Japanese forces landed on the northeastern beaches of Corregidor Island's tail. I covered the details of this landing two weeks ago in episode number 44. So, to be brief here, the 4th Marines managed to hold off the enemy for a few hours. But the lack of American and Filipino light artillery and trained infantrymen soon pushed the fight close to Malinta Tunnel's gates. Sometime in the early morning hours of May 6th, Corporal Irving Strobing began tapping out a telegraph message in Morse code. And upon liberation from a POW camp, Strobing told a newspaper, I was on the air 14 hours before stopping. The official surrender was at noon, May 6, 1942. I just took a chance and said about anything. I never did remember what I said, but I hope my mother would get it and keep up her hopes. I hope I didn't say anything wrong. It's interesting that he never remembered what he said in the messages. It just makes me think that he was so full of adrenaline or in such a fight or flight state for those 14 hours that what he said just didn't register in his mind. Further, Strobing didn't know on that final day of battle whether the message would be picked up by anyone. But Strobing's message did have a real-time captivated audience across an ocean in Hawaii's Schofield Barracks. You see, while Strobing was tapping, Corporal Arnold Lappert was decoding. One source I found says that Lappert, quote, felt the fear, the intensity, and the importance of those messages from Corregidor, close quote. Another source says that he wept over his keyboard as he transcribed the messages. A Manhattan native, Arnold Lappert was stationed at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked and then spent four years of the war in the Pacific. Of receiving the message, he later said, I had a general for a runner, one star, but a general. I don't know his name exactly, Collins, I think, but I'll never forget his face over my shoulder and the way he ripped the paper out of my hand and ran. The U.S. military leadership in Hawaii was immensely interested in Strobing's messages, as his words were among the main, if not only, source of real-time information they were getting about what was happening in the Philippines. A few weeks later, the entirety of Strobing's message, with narration, was broadcast via radio around the United States. It's that broadcast that we heard at the very beginning and will continue to hear throughout. One newspaper later stated, quote, Irving Strobing sent the farewell message that made a nation weep, close quote. And seriously, I don't know about you, but listening to that broadcast is haunting and makes me tear up a little to think what those men were going through. Strobing started his message, I believe, around midnight of May 5th to 6th, 1942. And not too long after the Japanese landing forces arrived on Corregidor Island. They're not near yet. We are waiting for God only knows what. How about a chocolate soda? Keep that chocolate soda reference in mind. We're going to return to it later. Not many. Not near yet. Lots of heavy fighting going on. We've only got about one hour, 20 minutes before. I suspect that Strobing was referring to the heavy fighting of the Marine regiments a couple miles away from Malinta Tunnel on Corregidor's tail portion, where the Japanese came ashore. 
I'm not certain what his reference to one hour, 20 minutes means, but here's my guess. So Japanese forces landed on the island's tail portion and fought their way towards Molinta Hill, taking a smaller hill and battery along the way. Here, the Japanese established their line. Now, during the early morning hours of May 6th, American and Filipino soldiers, artillerymen, sailors, anyone with a gun, were called in to reinforce the Marine units. At 6 a.m., those forces attacked the Japanese line. And I wonder if Strobing's one hour, 20 minute statement refers to that coming counterattack. But I could be wrong. In the mid-morning hours of May 6th, so I'm thinking around 9 a.m., as the fighting continued on Corregidor, Strobing tapped out. We may have to give up by noon. We don't know yet. They are throwing men and shells at us, and we may not be able to stand it. They have been shelling us faster than you can count. That bombing and shelling came from aircraft and from heavy artillery on Bataan Peninsula. The people on Corregidor had been shelled almost nonstop for the past week. The once lush, tree-covered island was a barren destruction zone, and Strobing will actually mention that later on in the message. An hour or two later, Strobing picked up his message again. We've got about 55 minutes, and I feel sick at my stomach. I am really low down. They are around now, smashing rifles. They bring in the wounded every minute. It is a horrible sight. We will be waiting for you guys to help. This is the only thing, I guess, that can be done. A plea from a desperate young man to his brothers in arms, we're waiting for your help. Actually, still waiting for your help would be a more accurate phrasing. For months, U.S. leadership on Bataan and Corregidor had promised that help from America was on its way. It wasn't. The powers in Washington decided on a Europe-first strategy for the war, and the result? Well, Strobing was describing that result to anyone who might pick up his message. And help for these men? Well, it wouldn't come for at least another three years. General Wainwright is the right guy, and we are willing to go on for him. But shells were dropping all night, faster than hell. Damage terrific, too much for guys to take. Enemy heavy cross-shelling and bombing. They have got us all around and from skies. Despite American and Filipino forces on Corregidor outnumbering the Japanese landing forces around 14 to 1, General Jonathan Wainwright, who was commander over all Allied forces in the Philippines, realized that continuing to fight against the inevitable defeat would lead only to more casualties. The Americans and Filipinos had men, and too many of those were undertrained, and rifles, but no light artillery or tanks or airplanes. The Japanese had all those things, and they had many units on Bataan just waiting to come to Corregidor Island. There really was no chance of Allied forces holding out for more than a couple days. Thus, Wainwright decided to surrender Corregidor. Strobing's message continued. From here, it looks like firing ceased on both sides. 
men here all feeling bad because of terrific nervous strain of the siege. Corregidor used to be a nice place. It's haunted now. Withstood a terrific pounding. Just made broadcast to Manila to arrange meeting for surrender. Talk made by General Beebe. I can't say much. Can't think at all. I can hardly think. Say, I have 60 pesos you can have for this weekend. That broadcast happened at 10.30 a.m. General Louis C. Beebe sent a surrender offer from General Wainwright to General Masaharu Homa, who was over Japanese forces in the Philippines. The offer included surrender of the four Allied-held islands in Manila Bay, collectively called the Harbor Defenses, quote, together with all military and naval personnel and all existing stores and equipment at noon on May 6th, if all your firing and aerial bombardment has ceased, close quote. At the same time, another radio operator tapped out a message to the U.S. general in command of Mindanao, which is a southern Philippine island. In that message, Wainwright gave the general command of all U.S. forces in the Philippines, except for the harbor defenses, and told him to report to General Douglas MacArthur immediately for orders. Wainwright concluded with, I believe you will understand the motive behind this order. Wainwright's motive, of course, was surrendering as few men as possible, just those on Corregidor and the few fortified fortresses in Manila Bay, rather than all Allied troops throughout all the Philippine Islands. Unfortunately, Colonel Beebe's broadcast message didn't stop the Japanese bombardment from the air and from Bataan. The Allies broadcast that message again at 11 a.m. and then again at 11.45. Then, well, here's my great-grandfather Al-Masalm's description of the next actions. Precisely on the hour, as the blazing sun overhead registered high noon, the white flag of surrender was hoisted high atop Rocky Malinta Peak. An unusual quiet settled over the rock, in sharp contrast to the din caused by many days of concentrated bombardment and bombing. Occasional Jap aerial bombings and sporadic firing in the western part of the island where our troops had not gotten word of surrender, were the only sounds. A feeling of frustration and dejection took hold of me as I watched our star-spangled banner give way. My eyes blurred before me. Psalm wasn't the only one tearing up. Strobing messaged, The white flag is up. Everyone is bawling like a baby. They're piling dead, wounded soldiers in our tunnels. I'm vomiting. Arms weak from pounding key, long hours. No rest. Short rations. Tired. I know now how a mouse feels. Caught in a trap waiting for guys to come along, finish it up. Got a treat, canned pineapple, opening it with signal core knife. 
That was 12 noon. The United States Stars and Stripes was lowered and burned. In those final moments, Strobing tapped out a personal message to his family, hoping that his mother would somehow receive it. My name, Irving Strobing. Get this to my mother, Mrs. Minnie Strobing, 605 Barbie Street, Brooklyn, New York. They are to get along okay. Get in touch with them soon as possible. Message. My love to Pa, Joe, Sue, Matt, Carrie, Joy, and Paul. Also to all family and friends. God bless them all. Hope they be there when I come home. Tell Joe, wherever he is, give him hell for us. My love, you all. God bless you and keep you. Love. Sign my name and tell my mother how you heard from me. At this time, Irving's older brother, Joe, was in the U.S. Army and stationed in Seattle. So that's what Strobing meant by, quote, tell Joe wherever he is, go and give him hell, close quote. Although this message was to his brother specifically, I personally also like to think there's a second meaning. A message to all U.S. soldiers who, as you know, had the nickname Joe to give the Axis forces hell, wherever they might be. Also, that message did get home to his mother. Strobing stated, Well, the final transmission from Corregidor was a message to my mother and the other members of my family. It was received in Honolulu and relayed to Washington, and the Army was good enough to have a colonel deliver it at home. After a pause, Strobing added a single word. Stand by. But nothing ever followed. It was the very last word broadcast by American forces from Corregidor Island. Mr. Strobing, tell us exactly what did happen. Well, Mr. Knight, the transmission was terminated when I was told that a Japanese tank was approaching the mouth of the tunnel. I thought it would be better for me to get further back in. That was Irving Strobing speaking to a radio host after he got home from the war and explaining exactly what happened after he tapped out, stand by. And although the radio and telegraph lines had gone quiet, Corregidor was a hub of activity. U.S. Army historian Lewis Morton wrote, During the morning, all arms larger than 45 caliber had been destroyed. The Marines, misreading the order, had begun to smash their small arms as well, and others had followed suit until an officer had halted the destruction. All classified papers and maps had been torn or burned and lay in shreds and ashes on the floor of the tunnel. The codes and radio equipment had been smashed beyond recognition and the treasury of the Commonwealth government reduced to trash. It took Colonel John R. Vance, the finance officer, and his assistant several hours to cut up with scissors more than two million pesos. By noon, when the destruction was complete, Malinta Tunnel presented a scene of unbelievable disorder, congestion, and confusion. 
The men in the tunnel had reached the end of their physical and mental resources. They were dirty, hungry, and completely exhausted. Some reacted violently to the order to destroy their arms and swore with bitter vehemence, but most were too tired to have any feelings at all. The quartermaster lateral had been thrown open and each man took what he wanted and went off to a quiet corner to eat his last meal before the Japanese moved in. Some lay down and went to sleep. Others stared vacantly into space. But still, the Japanese continued their advance and bombardment. Wainwright had the surrender message again broadcast at 12.30. Still, the Japanese bombardment continued. So, around 1 p.m., Wainwright sent a Marine captain with a flag bearer, a musician, and an interpreter to the Japanese front line on the island. Morton continued, As the group passed through the American lines, the music sounded out and the flag bearer waved his white standard, a sheet tied to a pole. The Japanese allowed them to march through no man's land without interference, and in due time, the Marine captain was taken to a colonel he believed to be the troop commander on Corregidor. To him, he explained that General Wainwright was seeking a truce and wished to discuss the terms of surrender with General Homa. The Japanese officer, after consulting his superiors on Bataan, told the Marine captain that if Wainwright would come to his headquarters, he would make arrangements to send him to Bataan. So, around 2 p.m., Wainwright left Malinta Tunnel. In a 1961 World War II docuseries, Irving Strobing recalled that moment. My name is Irving Strobing. On May 5th, 1942, I was with the United States Army Signal Corps stationed on Corregidor in the Philippines. After the fighting had ceased on Corregidor, we were all assembled on a steep hillside below Malinta Tunnel when General Wainwright and his staff came out on their way to Manila to sign the formal surrender. The men were utterly exhausted, but as the general, General Wainwright, slowly walked down the road, every man who could rose and stood at attention. Some of us saluted and some of us didn't, but I think most of us cried that day and we cried not for ourselves. We cried for General Wainwright. On that day, he was the most forlorn man I have ever seen. Wainwright rode in a sedan to Denver Hill, which is a hill on Corregidor Island that the Japanese had taken possession of. Then he continued on foot toward the summit where he met a Japanese colonel. The night before, Japanese General Homa had ordered this colonel to accept Wainwright's surrender only if the U.S. was surrendering all forces throughout the Philippines. When Wainwright explained that he was surrendering only the harbor defenses in Manila Bay, the colonel responded with, quote, an angry torrent of Japanese, close quote, saying that the only surrender he'd talk about is the entire Philippines, to which Wainwright responded, In that case, I will deal only with General Homa and with no one of less rank. The colonel then agreed to take Wainwright to Bataan. Actually, that colonel had already been ordered by Homa to bring Wainwright to Bataan. Turns out Homa hadn't heard the surrender message broadcast and didn't know until 12.30 that the white flag had been hoisted above Corregidor. Wainwright and his entourage reached Kakaben in southeastern Bataan around 4 p.m. on May 6. The Americans were taken to a home about a mile away from the dock where they waited nearly an hour for General Homa to arrive. Around 5 p.m., the American and Japanese emissaries sat down to negotiate surrender. Wainwright opened with an offer to surrender all the U.S. and Filipino forces that were part of the harbor defenses. 
Homa refused, saying that Wainwright had to surrender all the U.S. forces in the Philippines. Wainwright countered by saying he didn't have authority to surrender all the forces, just the units in Manila Bay. At this point, Homa stood, telling Wainwright, I do not have any reason to see you if you are only the commander of a unit. I wish only to negotiate with my equal. I advise you to return to Corregidor and think the matter over. If you see fit to surrender, then surrender to the commanding officer of the division on Corregidor. He in turn will bring you to me in Manila. This treatment was an incredible insult to Wainwright's rank. But Wainwright had no other choice than to return to Corregidor, arriving late that night. By the way, I gave you a very basic overview of that surrender negotiation. If you're interested in the more nitty gritty details, I suggest chapter 32 called The End of Resistance in Lewis Morton's book, The War in the Pacific, The Fall of the Philippines. While Wainwright was absent from Corregidor Island, Japanese forces had surrounded Malinta Hill, cutting it off from all other portions of Corregidor Island. More Japanese forces had landed on the island, and they'd entered the Malinta Tunnel with 20 men brandishing flamethrowers, demolition charges, and rifles. At Bayonet Point, they then marched the docile Americans and Filipinos out of the tunnel, except for those in the hospital. And here's Strobing's own account of becoming a prisoner of war that day. It's from the radio program that we heard him on a few minutes ago. We remained in the tunnel until the Japanese entered and took charge. We were then lined up in Malinta Tunnel itself and in a kneeling position were tapped on the shoulder by a Japanese officer using a saber and thus formally became prisoners of the emperor. You mean even under such circumstances they went to that degree of protocol? It was unexpected but it did happen. Now, did you ever realize, Mr. Strobing, that your radio message from Corregidor was broadcast all across the country? No, Mr. Knight, uh, I really didn't. I knew that certain portions of it had definitely been received, but had no idea of just what dissemination was being made. I've posted some pictures of Malinta Tunnel being evacuated. In it, POWs with their hands raised in surrender emerge from the tunnel entrance, while bayonet-wielding Japanese soldiers stand guard, some looking toward the camera. The photos are dramatic, but they were also staged. Liberated POWs would later share stories about how they were brought out of and then ushered back into the tunnel several times so that Japanese photographers could get several shots of the surrendering Americans and then use the best photos for propaganda back home. I've also posted a photo of Japanese troops removing the U.S. flag from the top of Malinta Hill. It's most certainly staged because the Americans removed and burned the flag at noon. But, of course, Japanese troops removing the flag makes for much better propaganda. And well, as we know, truth is the first casualty of war. But I digress. Let's go back to General Wainwright. He returned to Corregidor late on the night of May 6th to find that Melinda Hill and Tunnel had already been taken. Thus, he immediately surrendered to the commanding officer of the Japanese division on Corregidor. It was an unconditional surrender of all Allied forces in the Philippines, not just the harbor defenses. Historian Morton stated, All local commanders were to assemble their troops in designated areas 
and then report to the nearest Japanese commander. Nothing was to be destroyed, and heavy arms and equipment were to be kept intact. Japanese Army and Navy, read the closing paragraphs, will not cease their operations until they recognize faithfulness in executing the above-mentioned orders. If and when such faithfulness is recognized, the Commander-in-Chief of Japanese forces in the Philippines will order ceasefire after taking all circumstances into consideration. It was midnight by the time the job was finished and the surrender document signed. Wainwright was then taken, under guard and through groups of captured Americans and Filipinos, to Malinta Tunnel, which by now was full of Japanese troops. He went to the small, whitewashed room he had inherited from General MacArthur. Exhausted and humiliated, he threw himself down on his narrow cot. He had not slept and had hardly eaten since the terrible Japanese bombardment of the 5th. But sleep would not come easily. Though he had done all that he could, the first surrender lay heavily on his mind. No man could be expected to endure more than he and his men had. This the President had told him in the message received only a few hours before he had gone forward to surrender. Now, in the bitterest moment of his life, he could turn to the consolation of that message from his Commander-in-Chief. Quote, In spite of all the handicaps of complete isolation, lack of food and ammunition, you have given the world a shining example of patriotic fortitude and self-sacrifice. The American people ask no finer example of tenacity, resourcefulness, and steadfast courage. The calm determination of your personal leadership in a desperate situation sets a standard of duty for our soldiers throughout the world. In every camp and on every naval vessel, soldiers, sailors, and marines are inspired by the gallant struggle of their comrades in the Philippines. The workmen in our shipyards and munitions plants redouble their efforts because of your example. You and your devoted followers have become the living symbols of our war aims and the guarantee of victory." Close quote. Encouraging words. But could those words strengthen Wainwright, Strobing, and the thousands of American and Filipino POWs through the next three plus years of imprisonment, starvation, and even torture? The next morning, so May 7th, Wainwright was taken to Manila to broadcast the surrender terms to all the U.S. generals in other parts of the Philippines. That message went out over public radio. This is Lieutenant General Wainwright. Subject, surrender. It became apparent that the garrisons on those places were part eventually destroyed by aerial and artillery bombardment and by infantry supported by tanks which have overwhelmed Corregidor. After landing, General Homer, with no agreement between us, I decided to accept, in the name of humanity, his proposal. You will therefore be guided accordingly. And will, I think will, surrender all troops under your command to the proper Japanese officer. This decision on my part and was realized was forced upon me by means entirely beyond my control. Within a couple of days, Corporal Irving Strobing and his fellow POWs were marched to the southeastern part of Corregidor, where they were encamped with little food or water for a couple of weeks. 
and I'm currently working on an episode focused entirely on that experience. Among the men captured that day, along with Strobing, were these others whose stories we've discovered in previous Left Behind episodes. Frank Pizek, Louis Sontag, Brooks Miller, Alan Manning, Alton Hall, Adolphus Hutchison, Francis McManus, Henry Goodall, Nurse Clara Bickford, Felipe Fernandez, father and son Vicente and Marcos Macoro, Curtis Beecher, Arthur Kukendall, Aaron Pressman, Walter Werner, Meredith Huff, Paul Wing, George Hamilton, Edwin Franklin, and many more will meet in the weeks to come. I've put links to all their specific episodes in the show description. In early June 1942, Strobing and the other Americans captured on Corregidor were sent to the Cabanatuan POW camps. Here are Strobing's own words about his time as a prisoner of war. The term of imprisonment lasted 1,216 days. The first portion being spent in the Philippines in a camp at Cabanatuan until November of 1942 when I was removed to Japan itself. A 27-day voyage in the bottom hold of a Japanese freighter. Upon our arrival in Japan on the 27th of November in 42, I was put to work on a construction project excavating by hand what was to be a dry dock and later pouring the concrete. That camp was called the Tanagawa Camp, and it wasn't too far away from Osaka, Japan. After about a year and a half, I was transferred to another camp where we made little rocks out of big ones and also stoked the furnaces in a Japanese steel mill, and that lasted until September 5th, 1945, when we were liberated and returned to the United States. That rock quarry was at the Omi Camp which is on the western coast of Japan's main island. Here's his niece, Stephanie Wolken. Both of those assignments or jobs were pretty stressful, pretty physical, and done by, by guys who were not getting good meals. They were not in the best of shape. They were not being well fed. You know, there were bugs and lice and, and all of that. So it was designed to just keep the strongest people alive, and the rest of them fell by the wayside. And thank goodness he didn't. While in the POW camps, Strobing became quite sick. As kids, my brother and I would always ask him questions about the war, especially because we noticed that his upper arms had deep scars. And we asked him what that was about, and apparently he had contracted gangrene in both arms when he was in prison. His fellow prisoners found a way to make a still, and so they had, you know, happy hour, sort of. They knew that the gangrene had to come out and they had no way to do that, so they bribed the Japanese camp doctor to cut it out. They saved up their cigarette allotments, and that's how they bribed him, was with cigarettes. When the time came for the surgery, the guys took all of the whiskey they had brewed and they poured it into my uncle. Then they held him down while this Japanese army surgeon cut out the gangrene and saved his life. When we were little kids, he didn't tell us many stories at all. As we all aged and we talked about things, 
I said, well, what did you eat? Because, you know, they didn't have a lot of food for you. And he said, well, one time a dog walked in, but it didn't walk out. And, you know, I say that and it gives me shivers now. But we talked about it a little bit. And he said, the guys who gave up hope didn't come home. They died. And the guys who kept up hope and really thought there was a chance they could be freed were the ones who made it. After three years in POW camps, so in summer 1945, Strobing and his fellow Omi POWs began hearing encouraging news about the war. An American newspaper later reported, A British officer at Omi held daily press briefings, giving news he'd received over an illegal radio, brought in part by part, carried inside corned beef cans from Singapore. This daily news was a shot in the arm to the prisoners, who were always confident of victory so confident that they were wagering their rations on victory. Of those reports, Strobing said, From what we heard, our troops were moving like a machine, a wonderful, good machine. But we never dreamed that states would put on a show like this. And then, in early September 1945, after three years and four months in captivity, Irving Strobing learned that Japan had surrendered the war. Strobing said that their guards immediately tripled food rations and allowed a hot bath daily instead of one a week. They let us do as we pleased. The payoff came when American planes dropped more food than the Nips ever dreamed existed. We let them keep theirs. 25-year-old Corporal Irving Strobing was soon liberated by rescuers who parachuted into camp. On September 5, 1945, he boarded a train to Yokohama on Japan's eastern coast, for transportation to the United States. We rode a Jap train all last night. All night we peered through the windows looking for GIs. At a small station just outside Yokohama, we saw three GIs in a truck. It looked like giants, good giants. It was wonderful. Arriving in Yokohama and wearing a fresh uniform with corporal stripes, Strobing was met by Red Cross nurses who were handing out chocolate. This reception for us when I arrived at the railroad station this morning knocked me back on my heels. I couldn't say anything. I still can't. It'll take a week to get accustomed to it. Anything American is enough to stir your marrow. It's all unreal. I never thought I'd reach Yokohama or Tokyo and find Americans in control like this. These boys are unbelievable. He also had another personal message to his mother. Tell her, I am coming home. Tell her I am just as fit as when I left, and much happier. That message was delivered, and not long after, his mother Minnie also received a post-liberation photo of her son. I found a newspaper article with a beautiful picture of Minnie holding that post-liberation photo of Irving, and I posted it on the podcast website and Facebook page. Once back on American soil, but before returning to Brooklyn, Strobing first spent time recuperating at a military hospital. Here's Stephanie again. During the war, people back home raised money for ambulances for the Red Cross. My grandparents and, and my mother's family all pitched in and they were able to purchase an ambulance. So here's what he said. Following the surrender at Corregidor and 37 months as a POW, I returned to the U.S. and was a patient at Halloran General Hospital for medical processing before going home on R&R. Transportation around the hospital grounds was provided by the converted Red Cross ambulances. 
I rode the shuttle down to the PX one day. As I stepped down to the sidewalk, I turned, patted the van, and remarked to the driver, please take good care of this one. It means a lot to me. As the driver nodded and drove off, I can imagine her thinking that there went another sad case of combat fatigue. What she didn't understand, of course, was my special relationship with the lettering on the side of the van, donated in honor of Sergeant Irving Strobing. So, you know, he could have said, hey, this is my van, or did you notice my name? He just said, take good care of it. It means a lot to me. Strobing arrived home in Brooklyn by early October 1945, and it was a reception he wasn't necessarily expecting. First, his father had died nine months earlier, so that would have likely been difficult to come home to. Second, Strobing was a national hero, but he didn't know it. American newspaper reporter in Yokohama had reported, Because his radio appeal was never mentioned in his mother's letters, he never knew until I told him whether it was ever received. Now, just imagine him spending three years in horrid work camp conditions, only to immediately learn upon release that he's famous, in some ways a household name, for that last telegraph message. Newspapers across the country, and especially in New York, touted the news of Strobing's liberation and arrival home. October 15, 1945, was proclaimed Strobing Day in Brooklyn. He used a speaking opportunity to raise awareness for a proposed memorial for his buddies who didn't come home. And even though he was captured on Corregidor a month after Baton fell, Strobing was dubbed, quote, the voice of Baton, close quote. And he appeared with General Jonathan Wainwright at a victory loan drive. The publicity and large welcome were uncomfortable to Strobing, who his niece described to me as not boastful or attention-seeking. About four months after returning home, Strobing met Sergeant Arnold Lappert, the radio operator who had received Strobing's message in Hawaii. Now, do you recall the chocolate soda line from Strobing's message? Here it is again real quick. We are waiting for God only knows what. How about a chocolate soda? Well, in January 1946, Irving Strobing and Arnold Lappert got that chocolate soda. It was part of a news conference arranged by the Jewish war veterans of the United States. The two soldiers shared one soda with two straws. To me, Strobing looks slightly annoyed in the photo. But maybe it's just the angle or the odd posture and awkwardness of having to sip from a straw near a stranger's face while being photographed for a newspaper. Well, that photo appeared in the Brooklyn newspaper, which also stated that the photo shoot, quote, was a prelude to their reenacting their wartime roles at a Madison Square Garden pageant telling of the contribution American Jews had made in all the nation's wars, close quote. And unfortunately, I couldn't find any more details about that pageant. Well, Irving Strobing re-enlisted in the U.S. Army in January 1946, and he planned to make the military his long-term career. Here's niece Stephanie. After the war, he was stationed at Arlington Hall Station in Virginia. So he said, during 1948, I was stationed at Arlington, Virginia. The station commander was Lieutenant Colonel Barrows, who, like myself, had served in the Philippines prior to World War II. We had both spent more than three years as POWs. 
I met Lieutenant Colonel Barros on my way to my office one day and we exchanged salutes as required. After I had gone just a few paces, I heard Lieutenant Colonel Barros call my name. When I turned, he remarked that I was not wearing ribbons on my jacket and he thought it would be more appropriate if I did. I of course responded with, yes, sir. The next time I met Lieutenant Colonel Barros, he again stopped me and said, I remember suggesting that you wear your ribbons. My reply was, sir, I'm wearing the one that means the most. Pinned to my jacket was the World War II victory ribbon. He would have gotten lots of ribbons and medals throughout his service. The one that mattered the most was the victory. He worked in military intelligence and was sent to Paris and worked out of the U.S. Embassy in Paris for a couple of years. And then he was going to be sent to Iraq, again with Army Intelligence, and he came down with tuberculosis, which they attribute to his stay in the prison camps for all those months. He had to go out to Denver to a VA hospital out there, and then after that, he was sent to Tupper Lake Veterans Hospital in uh, upstate New York. Due to the disease, Strobing was discharged from service in May 1949. He was unable to work for a couple of years, but by April 1951, the disease had abated and he planned to go get a job or go back to college, unless the army would consider letting him back in. Sadly, that didn't happen, but he went on to have a successful career, first at the Federal Aviation Agency in New York. He worked at Kennedy Airport, he was Idlewild at the time, as someone who interpreted the weather for the pilots. So he was not an air traffic controller, but worked with them and the pilots as far as the weather. He also did that in Paducah, Kentucky. He also spent time working for the Department of Agriculture in New Jersey. And despite the tuberculosis, the result of his years in POW camps, derailing his hope for career, Irving seemed not to have negative feelings toward his Japanese captors. Over the years, you know, I said to him, how do you feel about it? He said, you know, the longer I live, the less a percentage of my life it is. So I think he made his peace with it, with having been a POW. He bought a Toyota car, (laughs) so no animosity there. After retiring in 1980, Irving moved to North Carolina. He went there because he liked the area. It was a little bit rural, and he got really involved with the radio club there. Just got in with a really nice group of people. And once they found out his history for their 4th of July parade, they wanted him to ride in a convertible. And if you ever knew my uncle, he was, I won't say shy, but never boastful, never. If you met him, you could know him for years and never know his story. But they really wanted him to do it. And he did because it was important to them. And that's another part of who he was, putting his feelings aside to do something that would mean a lot to other people. 77-year-old Irving Strobing passed away of pancreatic cancer on July 8th, 1997. We knew that he wanted to be buried in Arlington. They were limiting burials then because it's getting very crowded, but he's qualified for burial there. We had a visitation in North Carolina for his friends. The funeral director pulled me aside and he said, I know you're 
flying back and you have to fly through Atlanta, your uncle will be on your flight. And in Atlanta, he'll be transferred to be up in Washington, D.C. And he said, I wanted to let you know because it might bother you and we can make other arrangements. And I said, nope, he was always fun to travel with and I'll be happy to travel with him one last time. Today, Irving Strobing rests in Arlington National Cemetery. And I think it's only appropriate to let Stephanie's words conclude the life story of her uncle. I, I never really thought of him as a war hero when I was growing up. I just knew he was my favorite uncle. He was smart, he was witty, he was caring. He didn't harbor animosity at the Japanese government. I mean, he said, it's war. That's what you do in war. Grant, when we started talking about it, he was 20 years away from it. But that's who he was. He really didn't hold grudges. And he had a sense of fairness that then informs me. Back on May 6, 1942, when Irving Strobing was tapping out those last telegraph messages, a group of American sailors were in a small boat out on Manila Bay, and they decided to try to escape the Philippine Islands and make their way thousands of miles across the ocean to Australia. And guess what? They made it. So be sure to hit the follow button because there will be more on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find maps, pictures, and sources about Irving Strobing's story on the Left Behind Facebook page and website and on Instagram at Left Behind Podcast. The links are in the show description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe so you'll know when I drop a new episode and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Left Behind is researched, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Tyler Harmon. Special thanks to Stephanie Wolken for her time and for sharing all her memories about her Uncle Irving. And remember to subscribe to Left Behind because you won't want to miss the daring, impossible escape of those Navy men. <laughs> <laughs>